Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. I'm pleased to see you've returned once again to the shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and this is Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. And I have got a curious thing for you to take a look at. I've pulled it out of its display case. If you take a look at it, be careful not to cut yourself. It is a knife, but it's like no knife you've ever known. The blade is more that of a bone or, or maybe a tooth. It's known in some cultures as a Chris knife, not unlike the knives used and seen in a new movie by Denis Villeneuve. So let's pull out the kinetoscope and take a look at Dune. Before we get into the new film by Denis Villeneuve, Dune, really, Dune has such a rich history because it dates back to the 1960s, when it was first published as a novel by author Frank Herbert. Of course, Dune is really kind of the seminal novel for science fiction. It has inspired so much of what science fiction we know today is. Uh, it is one of the things that inspired George Lucas to create Star Wars. Uh, Dune, a, a brief, very brief uh, and broad overview. It's essentially about a, a special young man who is set to lead his family, uh, ends up leading an army, and essentially ends up leading the world and all of the machinations and the maneuverings that cause all of this to come into play. And it's a book I have never read. It's one I've always wanted to read. I've just never taken the time to read it. But I did watch the 1984 film from David Lynch, which was not a good... Maybe that's why I never read it up until now. Uh, because that adaptation, while very David Lynch-like was very confusing. I probably saw this. This came out in 1984. I probably saw it in 89, 90, somewhere around there. And it just was very bizarre, very confusing. And it was why so many people thought that Dune was an unfilmable story. Because David Lynch uh, really took a lot of things, especially a lot of the inner monologues and the vast recitation of exposition to heart. And that just made for a very long, drawn out, uh, sometimes boring movie. Beautiful movie and had uh, a fantastic cast. Because you had the likes of Brad Dourif, Jose Ferrer, uh, Linda Hunt. Virginia Madsen, Patrick Stewart, Sting, Dean Stockwell, and of course, Kyle MacLachlan. Uh, he made his uh, big screen debut as the lead, Paul Atreides. So a, a fantastic cast, just not a concise movie, not a very intelligible movie. It was just very confusing, as I remember it. I haven't watched Dune since I initially watched it back like in the late 80s, early 90s. But I just remember being very confused and, you know, enjoying it as much as I enjoyed, you know, all the big set pieces, all the big scenes, you know, it, 
the parts of the story that uh, didn't confuse the, confuse the hell out of me were, were very engaging. And for the time, it was just a fantastical movie. And I, I did enjoy that. But I remember when it was all said and done, just thinking, what? What did I just, what did I just watch? But much like everyone thought that the Lord of the Rings trilogy was uh, an unfilmable book, all it takes is the right director. And fast forward to now, and we have the makings of a very good adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune on the silver screen. And I, you know, like I said, uh, I've never read the book. I wasn't say I wasn't a fan per se of Dune, but I always thought the story was interesting for as much as I never read the book and. I saw the movie, but was you know just bewildered by it. I do understand the the novel and and what pertains to uh, to that. I watched the Thug Notes version of Dune, like every other good viewer of YouTube. But uh, so so I knew the story. I knew the basis of the story, and I thought, wow, this would be really cool if they could take this book and do it in the grand scope that I imagine this deserves. And really in 1984, they didn't have the technology that I think was necessary to do these films justice. Much like, you know, Lord of the Rings couldn't have been done the way it should have been done in the 70s or even the 80s. It wasn't until the technology really caught up that you could you could do the grand scale that uh, is necessitated by these larger-than-life books. And we've got a film now that I think is probably going to be considered uh, for years to come as the definitive adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. And I, for one, really enjoyed it. I'm going to go right off the bat. I'm going to try not to be too spoiler. I kind of find myself uh, teetering on whether to be unspoilery or too spoilery. How much of the plot do I talk about? Do I sit there? You know, I, I find myself at times uh, just kind of telling the telling the whole movie out. And I, I don't know if I want to do that. Like I said, this is uh, a podcast that I'm hopefully going to be growing and making better with each episode. Uh, so I'm, I'm still kind of tinkering with the idea of, of how much to talk about the movie and what goes on in it, how much not to. So I'm going to try not to be too spoilery and I'm not going to go over like every bit of the movie, scene for scene, beat for beat. We are going to talk about some of the uh, interesting things I found uh, about this movie and this adaptation. And we will touch on some of the some of the individual characters and some of the individual scenes and things like that. But I'm going to try not to, to go too in-depth as to, like I said, breaking down essentially every scene and every plot point of the movie. But uh, got to start really at the beginning for... Denny Villeneuve's Dune because uh, really it all starts with the writing and I have to say the the writing of this screenplay was top notch. You had John Spates, uh, Denny Villeneuve, Eric Roth who all contributed to to writing this and of course John Spates uh, he's been a part of Prometheus, uh, Darkest Hour, Doctor Strange, The Mummy. Uh, the guy has put together some, you know, some 
big time scripts for big time movies. And Eric Roth, his reputation precedes him <laughs> because he has done some some fantastic screenplays and, and a lot of great screenplays that have been adapted from books. And I think that was the key here is finding somebody that could help out with this that is good at adapting from a book. Of course, he was a part of Forrest Gump, The Postman, Munich, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, A Star is Born. Uh, he's just, you know, he's he's been a part of big productions, big movies, big scripts, and, and a lot of scripts that had to be adapted from novels. So I think bringing in a guy like Eric Roth was was very important. And, and Denis Villeneuve, he's, you know, he's no slouch either when it comes to writing and directing fantastic movies. Of course, he uh, directed uh, Sicario, Arrival. I loved Arrival. I thought it was great. Blade Runner 2049, uh, another great movie, which which really kind of lent itself to what he did with Dune and just the, you know, every shot is just a, a beautiful shot, let alone a, a well-directed shot and a well-acted shot. But uh, Denis Villeneuve, he just was like Peter Jackson with Lord of the Rings. He was the right guy to make this happen and bring Dune to the the big screen in a way that was deserving of a of a story of this magnitude and that really was one of the things that uh, impressed me most about this in the shots that we see with with this movie is that uh, Villeneuve he does a great job of providing reference for scale because this is a, a massive story with massive set pieces and just the mass of people and spacecraft. And I mean, this is a movie that's set uh, maybe not in space per se, but space travel is a, a big thing with this. And just the the mass of these ships and you see them outside of this planet and there's so many, they're just like little dots uh around this planet and then you get down to the planet and then the the ships are just these massive behemoth uh, vehicles and people are so small compared to them and just the the scale was just so impressive that it was just awe-inspiring and then another thing that i really loved about what villeneuve did and the art design of this is that this world or these worlds, I should say, because we kind of bounce around to different worlds, feel feel lived in. They feel natural. You know, everybody's kind of got a, a slightly different look. Uh, it feels like these these people, the groups, the families, the Atreides, they kind of have their, their feel to them. Uh, the Harkonnens, they kind of have their feel to them. Everybody kind of has uh, their own style that's kind of evolved over the years to be kind of that signature look of this uh, group and, and that group, but still while having some common threads that they all kind of came from the same place. It just It was a very lived-in world and a world that is rich in history. And I think that's one of the, the triumphs of the Frank Herbert novel is much like Lord of the Rings. This is a a world or, or a universe, a galaxy, whatever you want to call it, that is rich with history, rich with mythology, rich with lore, and and that is a great triumph for Herbert 
uh, it was a detriment to Lynch because I think there was just so much that he tried to convey and, and a lot of it ended up in exposition and it just drug things out and made things boring and just wasn't successful. Whereas Villeneuve would take things and there was some stuff that was done as straight up exposition, but it was done deftly. It was done with a, a deft hand where it was things came up naturally in conversation. And as somebody who writes for for radio, for advertising, you know, when you're doing a slice of life commercial with two people talking, there's nothing worse than when a uh, a client comes to you or a sales rep comes to you and hey, I I I write you a script like a little kid and wanting you to hang it on the refrigerator, and uh, and you read it and it's. It's just a bunch of lines that no two human beings would ever say naturally in a conversation. And it's just so cringeworthy when you see that. And and you get that in movies and TV shows sometimes. It, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I don't know, some people write things and they think, well, that sounds natural and it just does not. And... And the one thing about this script with Villeneuve uh, and, and the, the writing team is that you got some exposition, you got some history, you've got some information that kind of sets the table, but they did it so naturally. And, and they did a lot of portrayal of the mythology and the history of these peoples and these worlds by showing it in artwork in engravings on you know stone or in a piece of art hanging on the wall uh you may not understand it but you see it and you see the the representation of peoples and, and heroes from the past and and different creatures that you're not really sure what they are you're not introduced to them really but but when then you're finally introduced to like the sandworms i mean we see that big I don't know if it's supposed to be a metal mural or piece of artwork when the Atreides come to Arrakis and Paul is kind of looking at this big sandworm and we've not seen a sandworm yet, but if you've seen the, read the book or seen the uh, original adaptation, of course you know what a sandworm is, but, uh, but you see this monstrous beast and then when it finally shows up, oh, that's that's what that was and uh and speaking of sandworms the sandworms were were quite impressive uh just the sheer size i mean they looked huge in the david lynch uh version from 84 but what they did with this dune uh, just made them that much more massive and impressive and just it's those larger than life things that add a, an element of horror had had an element of awe that just bring a story that is this epic to uh, another level. But like I said, I, I really enjoyed the fact that they they told a lot of the story by not telling us anything but showing us, and, and I thought that was a, a great triumph of the whole team, the art design team, uh, Villeneuve and everybody involved with this story now another thing i thought was really cool uh maybe not so much about the about the movie but it's something that the movie did portray uh excellently uh but it's more of a, a commentary on the book itself because there are so many themes 
that uh, arise in this. And there's so many mixtures of culture. Uh, there's so much uh, terminology that is very, very much Arabic in nature. But Herbert also kind of drew from Greek and Hebrew and Navajo and Latin and Dutch. And just, uh, it, it's a melting pot of influences of language and, and culture. You know, you've got uh, bagpipes in here mixed with uh, people, you know, using very Arabic names and, and terminology. It, to me, felt like a, a great representation because I, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, these people are essentially earthlings that have gone out and colonized. And this is set in the far, 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 far distant future. And it's just interesting to, to see this idea that all of these earthly cultures have all kind of intermingled together and become part of the same same thing cups from the same well and then all these different groups have gone off and created different cultures and and but they still based on those very earthly things and it just uh, to me it was fascinating to watch uh, fascinating to listen to and a, a lot of themes going on in in this story and this movie uh, they really touch on a lot of ecological issues especially with the planet of arrakis and what's being done to it you know they're they're mining this spice which uh is a hallucinogenic drug but it also is somehow integral to space travel uh i don't know if they're going to explain that more maybe if i read the book i'd understand it more i've never quite understood how this this drug could be integral to space travel but uh but far be it for me. Like I said, it's science fiction. And much like horror or any other uh, movie that is fantastical, you have to have some suspension of disbelief. So I'm buying in lock, stock, and barrel that uh, whatever this drug is, yeah, sure, it helps in space travel. But they're they're mining this, this spice from this planet and ravaging it. A lot of ecological parallels to what we're doing to our own planet, which I think is is a lot that uh, you know we need to take into consideration. But they don't beat you over the head. You're not. It doesn't feel like you're being preached to. At least in this first one, I didn't feel like I was being browbeat with. Okay, yeah, I get it. I'll start recycling. But uh, but there are some ecological issues, and there's a lot of religious and spiritual themes that have been drawn from from various religions and myths. You've got Paul Atreides, who is very much a messianic figure, very much an Arthurian figure. But you also see a lot of things pulled from from other belief systems, whether it be Buddhism, uh, Islamic, uh, Catholic, uh, Judaism, Hinduism. I mean, Herbert drew from a lot of these influences to, to help create that world, much like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, drew from his Christian faith to create Lord of the Rings. Uh, Herbert drew from from a lot of different sources to to create these worlds, uh, to create this mythology, this mythos, this system of of living for these peoples uh, from from all these different planets, and just uh, it's so fascinating and spectacular to watch. Uh, it really does make me want to read the book to maybe get a better understanding of what he was doing and where he was going with it. But I think 
Denis Villeneuve and the writing team represented those themes and those ideas of, of drawing from all these different sources to create this world. They represented that so well on the big screen. And the acting, too, representing these characters was phenomenal. One of the, one of the things that I, I didn't know when I watched the 1984 adaptation of Dune and, of course, Kyle MacLachlan played Paul Atreides. I didn't realize that, you know, he was in his 20s, early 20s, when he took that role. And that was uh, a departure from the book because uh, it's much older than Paul Atreides is in the book. And uh, I like the fact that uh, Timothy Chalamet, who plays Paul Atreides in this Dune, was a little closer to at least looking the age of the Paul Atreides character, who is this... This kid, you know, he's kind of got the weight of the world on him. He is next in line to replace his father, Leto Atreides, once his father finally goes on. He's not sure if he wants that leadership role. He has these special powers. His mother, Lady Jessica, played uh, brilliantly by Rebecca Ferguson, is part of the uh, Bene Gesserits. I I heard him described from the book as being space nuns. (laughs) Which is kind of a a broad statement that uh, doesn't necessarily fit in today's ideals of of how women should be portrayed. But I like how in this they made them more uh, like warrior nuns, something like that. But she's a part of this this group, and they're trying to bring about this messianic figure, this messiah figure, this this one that is going to lead everyone on the golden path. So Paul Atreides has people pulling on him from all directions, expecting things from him. And I don't think he really thinks uh, he wants any part of it. But I really like the quote that Leto Atreides, of course, played by Oscar Isaac, which I, I love Oscar Isaac. I like him in the right roles. I wanted to love him so much in the new Star Wars movies, but the Poe Dameron character was written so obnoxious that I just, but I like him in so many other things and uh, Ex Machina and as much as the movie sucked, I did like him as Apocalypse in the X-Men Apocalypse, but uh, I was really psyched to see Oscar Isaac as Duke uh, Leto Atreides. And there was like such a cool quote that really kind of, spoke greatly about the relationship between Paul and his father when Leto says, a great man doesn't seek to lead, he's called to it, and he answers, if you answer no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be, my son. I found my own way to it, maybe you'll find yours. And it just, it spoke volumes to the relationship that Leto and Paul have as a father and a son, is that, you know, he he wants his son, he wants his what's best for his son he wants his son to to lead if he's called to it but if he doesn't feel like that is his calling then he loves him anyway he's still his son and he's still going to be proud of him and i think that was such uh with just those few sentences they spoke volumes to the relationship between those two which i thought was was pretty special and uh i i really enjoyed that that dynamic what little we got to see of it on the screen of course you got josh brolin plays uh gurney halleck that was the patrick stewart character from the 84 dune but uh, josh brolin's uh, he's another actor that i just for the most part i love everything he shows up in i loved him 
back when he was in the Goonies. I loved him when he was on that show Young Guns. I loved him when he started showing up as Thanos. I'm just a big Josh Brolin fan, and he plays that kind of hard but cool character. You know, he's the old, old grizzled veteran who has a you know stern but gentle demeanor and is not afraid to kick some ass when need be. Uh, I really enjoyed him in that role. Another person I really wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy was Jason Momoa. And I don't know if it is based on jealousy that I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy his character because my wife, uh, it seemed like that's the only reason she wanted to watch this movie with me was so she could see Jason Momoa, possibly shirtless, I think is what her... (laughs) words were uh which led me to start calling him jason mimosa uh to make fun of him but no actually jason mimosa in all serious i i enjoy him for what he for what he is uh, one i think he's a super cool guy he seems like one of those guys that would be cool to hang out with watch a football game drink some beers shoot the breeze is he a great actor i, I don't think he's a bad actor but when you cast Jason Momoa, your character is going to be Jason Momoa, not whoever the character's supposed to be. Uh, he's one of those guys that essentially plays himself. And, and sometimes that's a good thing. This, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a good thing because he plays Duncan Idaho, uh, sword master of House Atreides, uh, one of Paul's mentors, much like Gurney Halleck. And I actually did enjoy Jason Momoa, it, he wasn't his over-the-top self, cracking jokes. I mean, they showed that one joke in the trailer about him saying Paul looks like he's built some muscle, and Paul's like, really? And he's like, no. That was played. It got some laughs, but it wasn't played as much for laughs as it seemed like it was going to be in the in the trailer. And, and I really enjoyed him. And I, I got I to say, I mean, I know they've showed him on the movie poster sans beard but i don't believe i've seen jason momoa without a beard since he played conan the barbarian (laughs) it's been that long it's it was so odd to see jason momoa clean shaven i i wasn't sure what to make of it but of course you have a couple other standout characters uh dave batista always plays a a good heavy a good tough guy Uh, he plays the nephew to baron harkonnen got a shout out to stellan skarsgård who played uh, baron harkonnen he wasn't in many scenes and there i i heard somebody describe it that uh, he didn't have anybody to steal the scene from, but if he had, he would have stolen the scene because he just plays that character. I, I wasn't sure because I knew what the the Baron Harkening character was supposed to look like from the 1984 film. So I, I had this uh, preconceived notion and I was like, well, how are they going to do that? But they had like a fat suit on him and still had him floating around and he looked great and he felt menacing he felt like he oozed evil uh when he's in that uh, rejuvenation pool of that black goop and he kind of rises up out of that slowly it's, he, that was that was to me was a, a great physical representation of the evil that he oozed and uh, i can't wait for part two to to see a little more 
of Stellan Skarsgård on the screen because uh, I think there's a lot, uh, a lot of good cinema to be milked from from that character and his portrayal. And speaking of screen time, Stellan Skarsgård didn't have a ton of screen time. Uh, neither did Zendaya, who <laughs> everybody was all up in arms because Zendaya only had like seven minutes of on screen time, and for most of it, it was like. Just images, uh, Paul having these visions as part of the powers that he possesses. And she plays a young Fremen girl on the planet of Arrakis, who Paul eventually meets. And she's going to play a bigger role, much like Stellan Skarsgård and a lot of House Harkonnen. She's going to play a bigger role in part two, which we'll, we'll talk about that later. But I, I, this may be a hot take, and I'm probably going to piss people off. I'm not a big Zendaya fan. Not that I don't like her. Not that I don't think she's a fine actress. But I don't get what the hype is. Because she's kind of like Jason Momoa to me. Uh, anything I see her in, she's just playing herself. And uh, to me, that's, you know, a- actors like that are a dime a dozen. People that can transform themselves. Uh, to me, that's impressive. What little I saw of her on air, it sounded like she was playing Mary Jane in the new Spider-Man. Uh, you could have interchanged those two characters. Uh, hopefully, I'm wrong. Hopefully, like Jason Momoa, who I thought did uh, a surprisingly good job with not being Jason Momoa in this. I'm hoping part two will change my mind. And I'll be like, okay, she did a better job than I thought she would. But... Given given her track record and what I've seen her in, I just was I wasn't as hyped as everyone else seemed to be about her being in this. And the fact that she wasn't in but seven minutes of the movie didn't bother me as much as it seemed to bother other people. And then one more notable uh, actor that uh, I, I really enjoyed is Javier Bardem, who played Stilgar. He's the leader of the Fremen tribe, and. He just uh, a great actor, and he just plays that scene when he comes to meet with the Atreides after they arrive on Arrakis, and he does that little spit thing, and he, you know, everyone's taken it as a big offense, and Jason Momoa has to step in. It's just he played that character so well. It, it had such an air of humor. But it was also an air of, we've been treated like dogs for so long by the old house that was here, and I just don't care anymore. It was such a fun scene to watch. And then once you see him later in the movie, you see him being the leader that that you're expecting him to be. And I'm looking forward to see, He's another one who, you didn't see him much in this movie, but uh, I imagine we're going to get a lot more of him in the next movie so uh really excited about that a lot to be excited about with this movie because really this part one was kind of a setup to part two it was only the first half of the movie and the one thing that i was under the misconception i think a lot of people were that this dune that was released in 2021 was going to be the movie And we find out as soon as the opening credits, it says Dune Part 1. And I'm like, oh, there's going to be another one. Now, uh, to be fair, (laughs) I did kind of hear a rumor before I I saw that. So uh, I didn't have that 
uh, reaction, but I was I knew there was going to be a second one if this one did well enough, but I didn't realize that they knew that from the beginning. When they put this out, this was going to be part one. If it did well enough, they were going to do a part two, and I waited long enough to do this review because now part two has been greenlit and is set for release in October of 2023. So we are going to get part two, which would have been so disappointing because part one is just such a big setup for part two. I mean, it's a good movie in and of itself. Uh, it, it really sets the stage and it's action packed and it's exciting and it's interesting. It is a bit of a slow burn. I mean, it starts out slow. You're just kind of learning things, getting your feet under you in this world. And then it builds to this big crescendo. I really enjoyed the ride leading up to, well, now here's where things really begin. And that's kind of where they leave you off at that bit of a, not a cliffhanger, but it really left you wanting more. And luckily we are going to get more because uh, this film has done quite well in the box office. In spite of the fact that they released it on HBO Max at the same time, I, I always worry about that because I'm afraid it's going to hurt box office sales and We've got really good movies with great actors and great directors and great vision and great looks. And and they don't do well in the box office, even when they're not released to streaming platforms. And I just I f was afraid that was going to take away from the box office draw. But that wasn't the case. And we are going to get a part two, which will continue the story. And, and just kind of a brief overview of the story. You have House Atreides, who is this powerhouse family, this powerhouse world in this big universe and and of course they're kind of set up i mean that's a bit of a spoiler but for anybody that's seen the movie or read the book it's not a spoiler at all uh and and you really kind of get that uh in the beginning that this is all kind of a wind up for for some sinister politicking but uh house harkonnen has been running the planet of arrakis mining this spice and making loads of money off of it, uh, the emperor of the essentially emperor of the universe decides to pull them off Arrakis and give stewardship of the planet to the Atreides. And the Atreides, they have the best army. Uh, they know how to fight by sea and by air. They have all these advantages. Uh, Leto Atreides is a, a great leader. He understands that you know on his planet they had power through sea and, and air uh, on Arrakis. They have to learn to harness the power of the sand to become a, a dominant force. And, and he's very adaptable like that and is a very uh, smart tactician. And he surrounds himself with good people like Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho. And he's training his son to lead like he did and his son is becoming a warrior well they take over this planet and then of course the political sabotaging uh, commences from there and we see house of trade he's decimated uh, again maybe a little bit of a spoiler but uh you saw pretty much all this in the trailer that's that's the problem with trailers these days they give away so much a movie but then we see uh, Rebecca Ferguson's Lady Jessica and uh, Til Timothy Chalamet's Paul Atreides go on the run into the desert and then they meet up with the Fremen. And that's where we're going to see things pick up in 2023 with part two. 
Uh, now, if you don't know the story, I, I won't give away too much, but we get to see Paul Atreides becoming the leader that uh, I think his father wanted him to be. How they kind of play that out, that remains to be seen. You know, this this adaptation was fairly faithful to the books, I have to say. And I can imagine they're going to continue that. Like I said, you know, when Eric Roth is involved, adapting books to the big screen is, that's his wheelhouse. And John Spates and Denis Villeneuve, uh, both fantastic jobs of adapting this book to the big screen. So I, I imagine they're going to continue with that. But the things I'm more interested in are the the science fiction-y aspects of it. Uh, Paul has these powers. The Bene Gesserit's like Lady Jessica. What their designs are on Paul. How Paul uses his powers and grows his powers. It's It'll be interesting to see how all that plays out on the screen. Because like I said, so much of the book is a lot of internal monologue and internal dialogue because they have telepathic powers, some of the characters in the book. And it's a lot of like inner thought dialogue between characters. They portrayed that a little bit with like them having like a special sign language where they could talk to each other without speaking, which I thought was a great change from the book, but it made sense when you don't want to have, you know, these telepathic conversations that just was a detriment, I think, to the the original 84 movie. So it'll be interesting to see how all these things uh, play out on the screen. And for everything that was action-packed about this movie, uh, I think it's going to be 10 times, uh, 100 times bigger and more exciting as we continue this story with the next uh, installment. And and kind of the fun thing about it is that, you know, Dune wasn't just a standalone novel. I mean, there were, there were several books. I, I can't remember exactly how many books uh, followed, but it, this was a series of books that continued the story. So if this does well enough, we may see some adaptations of maybe more of these stories. I do know that they're planning on doing a TV show based on Dune called Dune the Sisterhood, which I believe is going to be on HBO Max, kind of kind of sent around the uh, Bene Gesserit and kind of serve as a prequel to this film. So it's not going to be a story that continues, but it's going to be an interesting story that kind of uh, gives a little more insight into that group of, of women. So that looks like it's going to be a really uh, fun ride to, to see what they do with that once it finally comes out. But there again, like I said, it's going to be interesting to see if the second one does as well as this first one, uh, how many more of the Frank Herbert novels we might see uh, adapted into big screen adaptations, which uh, I think could be interesting because, you know, we for, for those of you like me who saw Dune, the 84 version, I mean, that's all Dune I know. I've kind of read about the novel Dune, but I never really read much about the sequel novels that came after that in the series. So uh, there's a there's a lot of spice to be mined, if you will, from Frank Herbert's creation. And uh, like I said, I, I'm expecting part two to be just as big, if not bigger, a success uh, than this, this first Dune. And uh, really excited to see what more comes uh, from this 
from this universe and what could potentially be a huge sci-fi franchise. I mean, we haven't had a real pure sci-fi franchise of this scale come along in quite some time. I mean, talking pure sci-fi, you've had some sci-fi stuff that have kind of mixed with horror, with the aliens. But to me, that's that's more horror based in the sci-fi world, sci-fi universe. But if you're talking like pure sci-fi space epics, I mean, I, I can't really think of other one like Star Wars or Star Trek. Which Star Trek, I, I, you know, it's it's been so fractured and the Star Trek movies from the 80s and 90s, I wasn't huge fans of those, but, but they were all standalone movies. You, you could essentially watch one without necessarily having to watch the others. Whereas like Star Wars was continuing stories. I, I don't think we've seen anything at this scale uh, since Star Wars. So, so I'm like really excited to have this kind of space opera type franchise knocking at the door of, of blowing up. Uh, we'll see how the second one does. Uh, I'm expecting it to do well and look forward to, to more great movies in the future from this Dune series. Because what I like about it, it's not even all just about science fiction. One of the things Frank Herbert uh, did well is that he didn't play off the technology of the future. It was more about the politics. It was more about the the myth and the religion, uh, religious acts, aspects. It was more about the people. Uh, I heard somebody describe this as galactic game of thrones and that's what i like about that you do have technology you do have space travel you do have you know great fantastical weaponry but it's not all about robots and and gadgets and devices it's about the people and it's about the relationships and it's about the the backstabbing and the the political intrigue and the espionage and and all these interesting human elements set in the future uh, set in this fantastical science fiction backdrop and, and i think that's one of the successes of frank herbert's dune and one of the successes of uh, denis villeneuve's adaptation of dune and i encourage everyone if you haven't checked it out uh, go check it out check it out in the theater if you can if you have to watch it on hbo max it is well worth your time clocking in at two hours 25 minutes give or take just for part one this movie has the time to do this story right i think that was one of the things that was a detriment to david lynch's dune is that it was a long movie but he just didn't have the time to tell the story the way it needed to be told. Whereas doing part one, part two, both of them going to be, it's going to be about five hours worth of movie when it's all said and done probably. And even still, that's probably not enough time to get everything in these richly uh, intricate books uh, on the screen. But it's going to be enough time to, to do the epic nature and the vastness and the mammoth undertaking of this story uh it's going to do it justice on the on the silver screen so uh get a chance watch dune and look forward to dune part two coming out in october of 2023
So thanks for listening. I want to encourage everyone to check out our Facebook page, Odds Bodkins Curiosity Shop on Facebook. We're posting trailers and interesting articles that I've seen from all over the internet, all about horror, fantasy, sci-fi, always talking about uh, what I might happen to be watching as we get closer to the end of some of the seasons. Of course, I'm watching Chucky right now. You can get my thoughts on individual episodes there before we do a full season recap once that season is over. Uh, We've got a lot of things coming up. Horror Noir, the anthology movie that uh, that they put out on Shudder. Going to be talking about that real soon. Of course, we got some movies coming out. Uh, Eternals, Ghostbusters Afterlife. We're going to be talking about those. You can catch a complete schedule. Well, not a complete schedule. I think the last two weeks are actually last two episodes in November. I haven't decided exactly what I'm doing, but for the most part, the month of November is planned out. Uh, you can catch our schedule on the Facebook fan page as well. So I want to thank everyone for, for tuning in. Uh, whether you've listened to this on podcast.com, our platform, uh, Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, as they call it now, or Google Podcasts. No matter where you're listening, thanks for listening. Uh, Please give a review. Five stars would be awesome. Please share this podcast with anyone you know that loves horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. Always trying to do my best to, to talk about the things I love and what makes me love these these great movies and TV shows and books and music and anything that has to do with horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. So uh, leave a five-star review or any review would be great and greatly appreciated. So thanks for listening and until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!